I'm in Studio B, sitting across from my good friend, Daniel Chacon. And I'm sitting across from my good friend, Benjamin Alida Sines. And welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. Our guest today is Scott Weems. He is a neuroscientist, and he wrote this book called Ha! The Science of When We Laugh and Why. It's a fascinating book on humor written like a creative writer. Yeah, and he has a creative writing degree. He does. He has an MFA in uh, science writing. And he got that just so he could write this book. Yeah, he, he's quite quite committed to his craft. And also, on Poetic License today, we have El Paso's own Nancy Lechuga. And she's going to talk a little bit about one of my favorite subjects, daydreaming. It's one of my favorite subjects, too. I do it a lot. Me, too. Do you know sometimes when I can't get to sleep at night, rather than fight it, I just daydream? Well, it's called writing in your head. Or I guess technically it'd be night Daydreaming at night. Hey, there's a, there's a poem for you, Daydreaming at Night. I think I'll skip that one. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben and I just got back from Seattle where we attended the uh, Associated Writers Program's annual conference, which is this time there were over 14,000 writers, wannabe writers, publishers, and just crazy people in general. And what I love about AWP, and I refer to it now as Epcot AWP because it is so huge and it's such a commercial success it, it's not like it was before when you would go to an AWP and there'd be maybe a thousand people and everybody kind of knew each other and then there'd be a dance at the end and you know all the awkward writers would ask each other to dance. It was really a you know, much different experience from what it is now. I now, miss those days. Huge. Yeah, yeah. It was a completely <clears throat> different experience. And one of the interesting things about going to AWP is you cannot cross a floor without stopping 20 times and talking to so many different people. I know. And it's strange because you can't get from point A to point B because you end up you know, stopping so many times on the way, and then they might actually lead you in another direction. So it's, it's like a labyrinth. But what was your favorite panel at AWP? I am not being a liar when I say this. My favorite panel was a Canto Mundo poetry um, a reading with you and uh, some, some very young poets, and I just loved the contrast because they were reading this you know, kind of hip-hop, uh, inspired poetry. They were amazing. Yeah, but but then when you read your poems, man, it blew me away. I mean, it was just such a beautiful contrast to have, you know, two generations of of Latino poets represented. That really was my favorite. Uh, my second favorite, of course, was our panel. That was fun. <laughs> our panel was actually fun. Yeah, we did. We did a panel on Latino, the Latino short story, along with me, uh, uh, you, and uh, Fred Arroyo. Uh, Lorraine Lopez. Lorraine Lopez and, was great. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was a wonderful panel, but it was it was an interesting conference. But it's just getting way too big. It really is, and it's it's kind of unmanageable. Actually, you know, I think it's a great thing, and I, I do. I think it's a wonderful opportunity for graduate students to go and get to know the field, and get to to go to panels and and discover ways of publishing or other aspects of the literary world that they're interested in. And a lot of them get to be on panels, which furthers their professional career and, and all of that. But for me, you know, yo me gento. I get over people very quickly. And I always want to escape. Right. I, I really do. Which is why I always say to hotel that's, that's a walking distance from the AWP, but not right, right. right there. The thing that I find um, interesting is that because it is so important for younger writers to establish themselves and be on panels and get themselves out there, I, I wind up going to AWP not so much because I really want to go, but because younger writers will ask me to be on their panels. 
And I feel like that's something that I should do. Absolutely. You know, yeah. uh, because then, you know, it'll help perhaps get the, 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 the panel accepted. And, and they need that for their career. Right. And the fact is, the writers, we are a community. Not yes. just that we have the Latino writing community, but we also just have the poetry community. We have the the fiction writing community. And this is a chance for all the community to get together. And it's like one city full of writers. The only complaint I really have is it takes way too long to get a drink at the bar. <laughs> We'll talk to Scott Weems, author of Ha! The Science of When We Laugh and Why. Stay tuned. Scott Weems received a Ph.D. in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA and an MFA in creative writing from Lesley University. Previously a research scientist at the University of Maryland Center for Advanced Study of Language, he now lives in Little Rock, Arkansas. Scott Weems, welcome to Words on a Wire. Well, thank you very much for having me. First, let me give a little background uh, why we have you on this show, because usually we only have fiction writers and poets and, and creative nonfiction writers. Basically, we're a literary radio show. But I enjoyed your book so much, and I thought it was so well written you know, I thought, well, how can I get this guy in the show and justify it as a literary work? And the fact is, it is very literary. You have an incredible command of language and imagery and narrative. And uh, you're a neurologist, but you also have an MFA. Maybe we can start with that. Uh, sure. Yeah. First, thank you for the kind words. But uh, yeah, what I knew I wanted to, I, I knew so many things about humor and I was really getting into that topic, but I knew I, I wanted to write about it and get it accessible to popular audiences, people who weren't naturally scientists. And so I, I went for my MFA and got an MFA from uh, Lesley University in Boston, and I'm, I loved every minute of it. And what was your emphasis? What was your thesis? Uh, my emphasis was on nonfiction science writing, nonfiction, creative nonfiction. Uh, I also did a little bit of fiction, too, because I wanted to mix things up. Um, so I, I split. They were great, very flexible with me. They let me do half focusing on uh, science-based nonfiction and half on young adult fiction. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted it to be as varied as possible. So my next book will be, hopefully, a young adult fiction work. Very different. Wow. I, I write young adult novels as well. Oh, yeah, it's fun. It's so much fun. It is, to, isn't it? To write, it is. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. You're the, the very first neurologist we've had on the show. And uh, when, when you talk about taking, uh, taking an MFA in, in science writing to make it accessible, um, I can't help but think of these breakthrough popular culture books based on physics, like with, uh, what's his name, Brian Greene. Mm -hmm. Did you read a lot of these? The, I mean, because it's just incredibly accessible. And we'll get into the neurology and, and the jokes in a second. But what are your kind of role models for this type of book that, that's accessible yet incredibly complex? Uh, yes, thank you. For I guess I, I do. I love reading nonfiction. I read so much of exactly the authors you were mentioning. I, I started with I fell in love with Chaos by James Gleick. Mm. Um, that was quite a number of years ago, I suppose. And then so there's also I just love Bill Bryson, just his his British wit too, and all over the place. I love physics. Brian Greene is another great one. Um, so I, I just kind of I, I love reading stuff that I feel like I've learned something afterwards. But I mean, I like there to be a story too, and I've I've noticed from the good nonfiction writers that that I enjoy reading that 
I mean, you're telling a story in nonfiction too. You're you're creating an idea and you're you're presenting that idea. And so I think that the idea is, is universal for both fiction and nonfiction. Otherwise, nonfiction can just be putting forth lots of facts, and that's right. that's not even interesting to the people who surround themselves in that field. Oh, and I should say, I, I should clarify too, just because I don't want anybody, you know thinking I'm, I'm a medical doctor that can help them out if they, if they get a disease. I'm a neuroscientist, <laughs> oh, which, okay. is, which right. is the difference between a Ph.D. and an M.D., so I'm not technically a neurologist. So if, if somebody collapses in a room and says, is there a doctor in the house, I'm, I'm not the guy you want. Yeah, unless they're asking for a Ph.D. because they want you to collect papers. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, so let, me, let me ask you, one of the things I think that is incredibly difficult, and Brian Greene does very well, and I think you do pretty well, you know, really well in this book, is um, to take these complex ideas and to turn them into metaphor so that we can understand them. And I'm thinking specifically in Brian Greene when he talks, uses the Simpsons as, you know, a metaphor for, uh, uh, you know, an aspect of theoretical physics that is incredibly complex. And you have this wonderful metaphor, and I'm wondering if you can uh, talk about it. Maybe this will segue into the book itself. You say if the brain were a government, it'd be an anarchy. It is. And I think, I mean, we're we're just governed by metaphors in the way we think. I mean, this is just from a psychology standpoint, that's how we we think is we find the closest metaphor. And unfortunately, the closest metaphor that we have for how we think for most people is the computer. That we think of a computer, it has definite input and output, and there's a central processor. And I mean, a computer is a nice you know, analogy for thinking how the brain works, but it's imperfect in a lot of ways. Uh, most importantly is that a computer has a central processor, so the one part that's in charge telling the rest of the computer what to do. We don't have that in our brain. The brain is, is incredibly complex with modules working and arguing for who, you know, what's going to take charge next. And so it is an anarchy. I mean, and, and also we also think of the brain as specific parts active at a, a specific time. But really, at any given moment, your whole brain is, is pretty much doing something. Um, so when you see pictures of the brain with specific regions lighted, lit up, you know, those, those might be one, two, sometimes maybe 5% more active than other regions. But in the whole, all of your brain is, is active the whole time. So it really is just chaos going on inside your head anytime you're doing any sort of advanced thinking. In essence, uh, uh, humor, one of the ways that it functions, is, as, as you state in the book, is that it kind of somehow makes sense of all this information and all these contradictions and all this stuff that our brain observes. It puts it together in a way that, that, that allows us to reconcile, I guess you can say. It is, exactly. And that's why I think it's, it's so fun, really, is our brains are just so used to this chaos. It had to have some way of working through it and, and making order out of the mess and, and stimuli that surround us. And so humor is essentially what that is. You're setting up an expectation and you're violating it. So you're playing with that inherent level of conflict in our lives, which is why we, we laugh at a lot more than just jokes. We laugh at inappropriate times. We laugh at awkward <laughs> situations. And that's just because humor is, is, is a process rather than an outcome or a joke, I guess. Uh, you also talk about the connection between a good sense of humor, of, of the ability to tell a joke, and intelligence. Can you comment a little bit on that? Sure. That, I mean, that's fascinating how closely humor is related to intelligence. I knew that they were probably related when I started work on the book, but the correlation, without being too technical, is about 0.5, which is as close as most intelligence tests are related to each other. So if you measure someone's intelligence and sense of humor, you'll see as close a relationship as if you measured their intelligence using just different kinds of tests, which I think is, I mean, it says something about how we, we evolved. We 
if you think, what are the highest cognitive functions we do? What are the most complex things our brains can accomplish? There's language. There is just in general intelligence and problem solving. And humor is, has to be up there. I think that's why it's so closely related to you know, intelligence is because that's, that's what humor is. It's, it's problem solving just very, very fast sometimes. And, and also, I think when you're telling a joke, or at least when you learn how to construct a joke, uh, you're essentially learning how to put two meanings, at least two meanings to one thing, as opposed to one thing. Like you start a joke with a premise, and that premise leads to certain expectations. But then those expectations are diverted when the premise suddenly becomes something else. And that seems to be more complex thinking than just on the narrative level. Absolutely. In fact, there's a great, it probably is, is good for this one. There's a saying that if you want to make a point, tell a story. But if you want to make many points at once, tell a joke. And that, that's kind of what it is. I mean, a story can be straightforward, but a joke usually isn't going to work unless you're, you're saying a few things at once and they don't always mesh. Yeah, it can't just be uh, on, a, on one level. Otherwise, you become, it becomes like those computer-generated jokes you talk about with, at the University of Aberdeen. It's this, mm-hmm. it's this uh, program where you can well, tell, you, you tell a little about it, and I'm going to read a couple of the jokes that I found from it and, and how completely linear and singular they are. Yeah, what kind of murderer has moral fiber? A serial killer. It, it's not the funniest joke in the world. But it, was, it was written by a computer. And this is the kind of thing a computer can do. It can put together puns and things like that. But putting together a, a good joke that really is satisfying, that, that takes a little bit more, I think. I, I wrote down a couple. I, I visited that website, and if uh, people oh, yeah. want to visit it, you can just uh, Google jo- the joke computer. It's out of the University of Aberdeen, I believe. And uh, here's one that <laughs> I found this morning. What do you call a social gathering with a lock? A gate together. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it, works, it works simply on the level of taking the language and playing with it, but it mm-hmm. doesn't have any nuance to it. You know, it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't have any complexity to it. And what's fascinating is it's a lot harder for computers to recognize a joke than it is for them to make one. Yeah. Because making one is, you know, you can play with a pun or, you know, something like that. And, and, you know, a computer can do that. But recognizing that what you've just made is a joke, that takes some world knowledge. And that's, that's another step. We're talking to Scott Weems, whose uh, book, Ha! The Science of When We Laugh and Why, just recently came out with basic books. You know, we're, we're talking about intelligence and the ability to tell a joke or to recognize a joke or to construct a joke. I listen to a lot of these podcasts from comedians. Uh, like there's this comedian named Joe Rogan, who's very, oh, yeah. very popular, and uh, uh, the, the comedy nerdist and Mark Maron. Um, and I'm finding that these comedians are just incredibly intelligent. They can, they can go on for hours and hours and just talk about you know, a, a subject, go from subject to subject. I was really kind of impressed by that, 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 that there are so many, so many of the stand-up comedians are, uh, are above average in intelligence. It is fascinating. I think Joe Rogan's a great example because he illustrates another thing that these, these people have in common. And this isn't an insult. This is, this is science. Um, they're a little neurotic, too. And psychotic. Psychotic, yeah. And, and this is one thing research has shown, too, yeah. that uh, to, to be able to tell a good joke, to make, tell jokes that people enjoy, you need, to, you need to have a little bit of edge in the form of neuroticism or psychoticism. And these are, these are not pathologies. These are just psychological no. dimensions. They're, they're on a scale from being, let's say, very stable to very neurotic. And we're all somewhere in between. <laughs> like and, Lewis Black. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And so it helps to be to be not entirely stable. And research, research shows this in personality tests. And so Joe Rogan, I mean, I love him. I listen to him all the time. But he's, he's a little bit out there. You know, yeah. he's, he's a little scary in a fun way. And I think you need that edge to kind of connect with people. Is, is that why they use so many cuss words? <laughs> it shocks you, doesn't it? I mean, he's pretty good at, <laughs> pretty good at being free-flowing with those. How did you get onto this topic anyway as a field of research? <laughs> I I wish I had a better answer for it. I just kind of stumbled into it because I, when I was in graduate school, which was sadly quite a number of years ago, um, <laughs> I, I was interested in humor, but I didn't think I could make an in, a, a living out of studying it because it's it's hard enough to get grant money in topics that people respect and you know they they hold on high ground, and humor is one of those topics people are interested in it, but nobody really studied it full time. I think it's only really been in the past five ten years maybe that scientists really just. They, they, that's what they study. Some of them, that's, they specifically want to understand humor and how it works in the brain. And so it was probably about five or ten years ago that I realized that I, I wanted to immerse myself in the subject and see how other areas which I had been trained on and, and learned, you know, studied, like language and metaphor and things like that, and intelligence are really just so close to humor that it's, it's worth making that my, my primary focus. And was it hard to get published? Were people really interested in this? Um, I can't claim that I'm, I'm an early publisher or a publisher in, in humor. I, I try to take a little bit more of the journalist perspective. Fortunately, I have that cognitive neuroscientist degree, so I, I could do that. But I have heard from people, and you know, just from my, my working with those people, that yes, it is hard to get published. There, there's one journal, it's called Humor, the International Journal of Humor Research, I think is what it's called, that, that publishes exclusively on that topic. But otherwise, there's not many journals that will they will publish it still. They're getting a little bit more open than they used to be. But they're, they're nervous because, unfortunately, a lot of people see humor as, as a chance to make jokes rather than to actually study it seriously. And I take humor seriously. It's, it's worth, you know, really immersing ourselves into an understanding. Well, Scott, we're running out of time, but I can't let this show go without having you tell us what the funniest joke in the world is. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, this is a fun one. It was a, the brief history is there's a there was an experiment by Richard Wiseman, a, a British psychologist, who he set up a website, asked people to submit their favorite jokes and also rate jokes other people had sent in, and his goal was to study things uh, like what gender differences in humor, taste, and nationality differences. But since he had so much data, he was also able to find what was scientifically proven to be the funniest joke in the world, If uh, I guess if you want to hear it. Yes, uh, please, tell us, uh, tell us the joke. Sure. I should warn you, science might not be infallible <laughs> on this topic, but I'll, I'll do my best to, okay. to share what one. Uh, so two hunters are, are walking in the woods, and uh, one of them just falls to the ground. His, his eyes are glazed and his mouth is open. It's not breathing, so... The other hunter, he's panicked. He calls 911, and uh, the operator picks up. Yes, sir, what's your emergency? He goes, oh, my gosh, I think my friend is dead. What do I do? And the operator is very calm. He says, okay, sir, calm down, calm down first. I need you to check and make sure that he's dead. There's a little bit of a pause in the line, and then a bam. And then the guy comes back. Okay, that's done. Now what? <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> that's, um, that's that's science there. So I, I, I can't argue with science. Right. And 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 the other the other scientifically I guess proven uh, formula is that the best jokes are one hundred three characters. 
Best jokes are 103 characters, and if your joke involves a talking animal, uh, always choose the duck. <laughs> the because duck. the duck is the funniest animal in the world. And that's, again, that's also science. Yeah, the duck, I think the cow's pretty funny too. But yeah, the duck is absolutely funny. And yeah. there's, uh, Mitch Hedgeberg has this joke. He says, I think duck's opinion are me, of me based on whether or not I have bread. <laughs> That's a good one too. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Scott Weems. Uh, check out his book. It's called Ha, the Science of When We Laugh and Why. Thank you very much for having me. This was fun. Poem of the Week, I am going to read Eating Poetry by Mark Strand. Ink runs from the corners of my mouth. There is no happiness like mine. I have been eating poetry. The librarian does not believe what she sees. Her eyes are sad, and she walks with her hands in her dress. The poems are gone. The light is dim. The dogs are on the basement stairs and coming up. Their eyeballs roll. Their blonde legs burn like brush. The poor librarian begins to stamp her feet and weep. She does not understand. When I get on my knees and lick her hand, she screams. I am a new man. I snarl at her and bark. I romp with joy in the bookish dark. That was Mark Strand's Eating Poetry. My name is Nancy Lechuga. I am a mother and poet. What inspired my poetic license? Um, well, magic has always been very important in my life, and I began to think of how I personally keep magic alive and how magic and the imagination shape my experience in this world. This following piece is on daydreaming, the mind's way of keeping fantasy alive. I blame daydreaming for my poor mathematical skills. When I was supposed to be learning long-division algorithms, I visited Zeus, replayed novella scenes starring me as the tragic protagonist, and carefully designed my multi-million dollar mansion down to the texture of my brightly colored bedspread. During algebra class, my crush declared his love during the homecoming pep rally and sang I Swear by Boys to Men while his football buddies sang the cheesy chorus. And when I was supposed to be learning geometry, I found out I was adopted and really the daughter of a very wealthy Argentinian mogul. Sometimes I like to go and sit on Saturn, just for fun, and skate around its icy rings. Other times I like to have coffee with Albert Einstein and talk about poetry and physics. And every time I point out the breadcrumbs on his mustache, I try to muster the courage to confess my undying love to him. And when I fail to understand the theory of relativity, I smile and nod my head in understanding. But in my head, I am engaging in pun wars and metaphor battles with different versions of myself. I can't sustain myself solely on dreams, but they do serve as snacks in between meals. I'm a hopeless dreamer and a chronic daydreamer. Daydreaming is the spice rack that helps season the most mundane situations. It is the honey that sweetens even the most bitter of breakups. Breakups are emotional roller coasters, denial, anger, sadness, pain, longing. Daydreaming helps cope. 
if only momentarily with all the emotional stages. Sometimes I get so angry that my stomach begins bullying its surrounding organs, and my heart attempts to claw at my throat by using its arteries as crudely contrived hands. When these emotions interfere with my everyday responsibilities, I take back control by imagining my ex in the most precarious of situations, just as a sort of poetic revenge. I've imagined him trampled by a pack of tweens at a Justin Bieber concert. I've also imagined giving him a freshly baked apple pie, which he takes a huge bite of only to discover it isn't really apple pie, but a chile pie, a combination of the world's hottest peppers. And then I laugh and withhold a cup of fresh lemonade for a couple of seconds. I also imagine his pants ripping when he bends down to pick up a dry erase marker and his coffee being cold and sweetened with French vanilla. Then, when the nostalgia and the missing him part kicks in, I imagine showing up to his house with a trio and singing Cri-Cri songs as romantic ballads. I imagine running into him at the grocery store, looking casually hot, and him eating his heart out at the produce section at Albertsons or Ranch Market. I've had the same fantasy in both grocery stores. Petty me. In this world full of pain, I like to search for magic. I get my metaphorical broom and sweep under the sofa, hoping to find a half-chewed candy with only a bit of lint on it. I like to open my mouth to the sky when it rains and choreograph mundane sounds, like the sound of the blender, footsteps, bird chirps, and the sounds of speeding cars on the freeway. Life is marvelous and mischievous. It likes to trick us and tickle us with coincidences. I like to think about synchronicity, about the people in my life and the people yet to come. I think of the father of my babies and how maybe, just maybe, when we were little, we played at Armijo Park and he pushed me off a slide and stuck his tongue out at me. If I had remembered the specific circumstances of why his face looked so familiar when we first locked eyes, maybe I wouldn't have felt inclined to procreate with him and I wouldn't have the two wonderful children I have today. Maybe that possible incident in the playground explains my desire to make him like me. And then again, maybe I'm just insane. I like to think about the weave of connections between the people in line at the DMV or of any room at any given time. How do we know that we haven't already met our next romantic partner? Maybe we have smiled at each other while walking down Stanton Street, or we were both waiting at the same stoplight at the same moment looked over and locked eyes for a split second. Maybe my neighbor, who they call El Gordo, is his second cousin. And maybe my second grade teacher is the estranged wild uncle he never met. Maybe our great-great-great-grandparents had a sordid affair, and maybe our fathers played pool in some dingy Alameda bar circa 1972. That is what makes this world so beautiful, the intricate connections between all of us that we never find out. Can you imagine what a map of our lives would look like? Magic is why I love daydreaming, because most things can be done, and maybe my daydream is someone else's truly awesome reality. Maybe out there listening is someone who thinks my mind is hilarious and looks for me on Facebook because he or she too has also thought about the pepper pie or the mundane choreographies. Because really, we are not that different. 
After all, we are the same species living the human experience, indulging in the senses, feeling the same emotions, wanting the same things, and living on the same small planet somewhere in the vast expanding universe. It is only a moment that we live on this earth, but we can make the best of it by fully living the moment in the flesh, the mind, and the soul. Maybe we should all daydream a little more. Except me. I already do plenty of that. For Words on a Wire, I am Nancy Lechuga. Thank you for listening to another edition of Words on a Wire. We'd like to thank Scott Weems, author of Ha! The Science of When We Laugh and Why. And we'd like to thank Nancy Lechuga for her reflections today on Poetic License. And I'm Daniel Chacon. And I'm Benjamin Alida Sainz. Join us next week for another edition of Words on a Wire. And remember, the next book you read may save your life. I'm up on a tight wire. One side's ice and one is fire. It's a circus game with you and me. I'm up on a tight rope. One side's hate and one is hope But the top hat on my head is all you see And the wire seems to be the only place for me A comedy of error